Welcome to 100 PM, the show where we interview 100 active product managers from startups to enterprise, everything in between, all from one great city every season. If you're joining us for the first time, be sure to visit our website, 100productmanagers.com. That's the number 100, productmanagers.com. It's the web's largest single free resource for product management topics. We've got tons of great articles about business, technology, and design, fabulous contributors, and the official must-read, listen-to-follow list, as recommended by our incredible guests, week over week. It's season one. We're here in sunny Los Angeles. I'm your host, Susanna Bate, resident instructor at General Assembly and founder of The Development Factory. Welcome, and thanks for listening. Hey there, everyone. Happy Tuesday. It's episode 16, and I'm super excited about today's guest. Arshad Walla is the CEO of Digital Works, a product consultancy based out of Beverly Hills. He's also a user experience design instructor for enterprise-level clients looking to up their game in the world of product. Today's episode is all about experimentation and how to be in your MVP. Let's get started. Arshad. Arshad Walla. Hello. CEO Digital Works. Yeah. This is the story of you. Oh. <laughs> you didn't know that's no, why we were the here? The story of me. Cool. The story of me. No, let's, no. let's uh let's go back. Let's let's I'm an expert on me. We can talk about me. <laughs> right. So you're the expert of you. Let's uh let's work backwards. Sure. How long has Digital Works been around? Uh Digital Works has been in formation, I'd say about four years but in the making for the last 11 years. What is it? Uh, so we're, we're a consultancy, which is a little different than an agency or a firm um, or a product company. We, we help other companies create products, uh, create experiences. Products is the new buzzword, but it's really create and craft that experience. So it's the experience of using the utility, which could be a product or a service. It's the experience of designing and maintaining and scaling that that service, that utility, and then it's that sort of leave behind visceral feeling that people have. Um, you know, that how people brag about it, how people evangelize your brand. So it's sort of the consulting of crafting those three layers that we define as experience. One of the things that's been my experience at the Development Factory, and, and we do a lot of similar work, right, is that question of going outside to a group like Digital Works, a, a sort of a team of experts in the realm of product versus kind of insourcing and, and developing from within. And I'm not talking just, of course, about engineering. I'm sure. talking about everything. What do you think is the benefit to somebody sitting around saying, I want to create a great experience. I'm going to go and Sure. Hold on to a team. So there's that great saying, which is like outside, you know, outside in looking or outside in thinking. And I think that the biggest differentiator of us being a consultancy, not an agency, is that an agency would produce that work. So that's where a product company or a company says, oh, we're going to this agency. Let's have them help us out. We come to you, right? So we believe in the same team and we integrate within your company. So we, we're not an outsider. We come in and we 
look at the resources that company has and we work with them. So we're facilitating, right? So we come in with a process. We come in with a neutral point of view or we come in with a view that we're not, with not the same pressures and stress, right? So if you're looking at an internal team and you want them to be innovative, well, your product person has some revenue goals and stresses on that. The designer and engineering have their own personal goals and department goals. So us coming in as an outsider sort of says, okay, great, let's put those aside. Let's band together as this new blended team and let's go execute. So really what we, the biggest value we drive is that we have a process that is not contingent on other sort of priorities that distract from creating the proper experience. It, it sounds like a lot of the clients that you work with are established companies then. What is that moment that happens internally where uh, an existing company says, I think we need help. What, where do they realize that? Do they realize that on their own? Uh, more and more. And it's actually, so there, there's an interesting shift where you go back when we first started about five years, it was a very hard sell. And really it came from us helping with startup companies. So it's interesting. With startups, you, you have a CEO and they have a vision, but they have no revenue, no customers. So that's where product market fit comes in very importantly, because if you don't see that sort of gap and opportunity to go close, then you don't have any, you will never survive your startup phase. So we learned activities and techniques to validate that, to, to lower the risks and to understand the assumptions on how big they were. So using those same techniques, we would sell those as insight drivers to the enterprise, right? So enterprises would be launching products and be like, wait, why is it not working? Or how come it wasn't exactly what we expected? And there's a lot of things that get covered up with a lot of marketing dollars. So you can buy ads and PR and then that will do wonders, but you still, that has a short-term effect because then your, your drop-off comes back because there's no core value. So then the question is, like, how do we provide value or understand value sooner, it was the same activity, same techniques, just different medium, different scale. So that was the sell, and the sell was hard, but you had companies that were leaders in that space who wanted to, so we worked with the redesign of Disney. They hired Frog to do this grand conceptual vision, then they had their internal team start to build it, and then we came in and said, like, let's start testing every two weeks. And I'm like, well, what are we gonna test? I said, doesn't matter, every two weeks we're gonna commit to a test. And then that just changed the tone, where we didn't know what we were, but we instilled that process. So every two weeks, we'd have something, we'd test it, we'd learn about it. We'd, we, we realized that people were mostly buying. It's interesting, in Florida, people buy multi-day tickets. In California, they buy single-day tickets. Can't have the same interface for both, so we designed two different variances, and now you launch you know, geographically specific interfaces. Um, what's happened is that transitions happen where now everyone needs a UX, UI. So we don't have to do the sell. People know us, oh, we do UX, UI, let's get them in. But they don't understand why. So the difference now is that from us and other agencies, that other agencies might sell an academic process or they're trying to still establish themselves and what value they derive. And so it's very sort of tools focused. What we've realized is that tools are 50% of the value. You also need mindset. So we come in and we have a conversation. We get an understanding. And we immediately sort of connect with our sponsors or stakeholders saying, you know, I got a sense. Is this how things are operating? and it's not yielding good results. And they're like, yeah, exactly. I said, great, you know what, we have to change the way you think. Um, there's that classic little A Agile versus big A Agile. There's doing Agile and then being Agile. And it's funny, I had someone who was a client who was like, Arshad, you know, 
look at our backlog. We're being agile and we're going through. And then I noticed the backlog had three three hundred tickets in it. <laughs> and, and, and about an hour into it, I said, like, "Hey, can we stop? I got a question." I said, "You know, we're talking about agile, and you guys have this great Jira board. Three hundred tickets, just that in a vacuum, doesn't seem agile to me. Like, what are you talking about?" I said, "Well, if you're supposed to react to change and be reactive, how could you have estimated so much work?" How can you plan that? That's like me saying I'm planning out 12 months in advance. So they were all looking. I was like, so what do you guys say? I'd say just delete it. I said, sort it by freshness. If it hasn't been sort of tagged in the last 90 days, delete it. And what shocked me is that product owner looked at it, started doing some filtering, looked around, and then they just started deleting it. Right. right? So to me, there's that difference. So companies, I don't have to sell it. Companies look for UX, UI, uh, or they look for innovation. And we come in, and then it's our sort of being and practicing and being present with the client that sort of keeps us there. That, that story of the of the backlog reminds me a little bit about um, uh, the book Getting Real, 37 Signals, right. when they talked about when they launched Basecamp, you know, as you know, the people would submit, here's a great idea, love the product, here's, you know, a dozen great ideas of features, and they'd be like, thank you so much, delete, delete, delete. Right. You know, they weren't tucking away all of that feedback for a someday, and it's that there is that sort of reckless abandon or that, that willingness to pivot that comes from not caring. It's like life, right? Yeah. The more we bog ourselves down, we get married, we have kids, we have this home, we have this job, we have these things. It becomes harder and harder to make a change, even if we think a change is right. So we keep going down a path. Yeah. Well, it's funny where there's so many parallels from just doing and being. Um, but yeah, that's an example of like using a tool, but not having that mindset there. And it's interesting, I joke, but my wife also being in the product industry, I say she gives me a retrospective every week. <laughs> so that, that's really what, why couples go to therapy, right? Like we don't go to therapy because she gives it to me every week. She says, these are the things you did really well, please continue doing that. <laughs> and these are the things you didn't do so well. Figure out why you didn't do them so well, right? So I get a Delta Plus every Saturday. So she's a better product manager. She's than you, way, way like. better product manager than I am. That is funny. I, I mean, I've certainly seen uh, ways to apply agile into other disciplines, but I haven't really thought about incorporating <laughs> it into uh, couples. So this is good. This is good. I guess I can't take it now that we're on the air. This is this is going to be yours. Um, so it, it, talk to me a little bit about, um, you, you know, you, okay, so you described this as the experimentation, right? In, in product, we talk about this, this the, the number one most misused term, minimum viable product. Mm -hmm. Everybody has just come to think that it means put a shitty product right. in market or put a product in market with a few features. Right. But the MVP, as it was sort of originally defined, is about experimentation. Mm -hmm. It's what's the least amount I can do to learn the most amount about something. Right. And it sounds like from what you were describing that that was a lot of what you were bringing at Digital Works, certainly to your startup clients, is saying they're coming to you and going, how much to build this big vision? And you're saying, we'll take 10% of that and try to prove right. or disprove if any of the things you think are right or are wrong. Right. So... Can you share with us like a, a couple? Do you have a couple memorable experiments that you guys conducted yeah. that that you could? I, I can talk a little bit more in general, just about sort of my passion for having an MVP focus, um, and, and I can give some examples. And and the examples are true for our startups or to our enterprise. But I think before the MVP, uh, it actually goes back to sort of Steve Blank, sort of like you know understanding your customer. 
And I think that you need to understand your customer before you get to your MVP. And I think that's sort of nice, like product is MVP, customer is sort of the UX of this discussion and that. But what I tell anyone, uh, mostly our startups, is that show me five potential customers. If you can't rally five potential customers, forget what product you're going to build. And they're like, no, no, but we just need you to build it. I said, great, imagine I built it. Now what are your customers going to say? How are you going to convince them? How are you going to tell them the value of it? And that's where things get hard. Because then I find out that the people they've been talking to is like their cousin and their mom. And my mom loves everything of mine, right? So find five actual customers, potential customers, to just talk to you for 10 minutes about this. If you couldn't find that, then the problem's not real for them, right? So let's say you overcome that hurdle. You've talked to five potential users, consumers of your experience, and they want to have this discussion with you. Then it comes into this like MVP. And I, it's, I've heard this many times. This is our MVP, and then this is version one. Or this is our MVP, and this is version two, version three, version four. And I say, you know, you guys have to understand, you are always in MVP. Because MVP means minimal, which means the least amount of work. Viable means how do I maximize the value, and what's that product solution look like? So I would never want to say, let's, and I've heard most viable products, like, <laughs> and very, like MVV, so minimum, very, I mean, there's all of these variances. But what I'd say is, why would you ever want to do more work than necessary for the same value outcome, right? So for me, that just means working smart and then working hard, not working hard and trying to get all the bells and whistles. So I think that's a mindset where it's MVP and then it's MVP and then it's MVP and you should always be in your MVP. And so that gives you an interesting scope of what do you consider part of your MVP. So if you look at companies like Apple, they put design and form uh, and aesthetics as part of the product. And that's part of the allure and the, and the culture that's around it. So those characteristics need to be defined in their definition of an MVP. So I help companies and they say, it's like, oh, we're building MVP, but the design looks like crap. And I say, you know, think about the company you're in. And this is mostly for our enterprise companies. And I say, what, where in your organization does design have its importance? Where do people value it? And if your company from the top or from its DNA does not value design, stop trying to make this an Apple from the bottoms up. Maybe you should find another company to work for. Maybe you go work for Apple, right, if you hold it so true. So when it comes to experiments, it's interesting. People get surprised on what I define an MVP. But my MVP is a survey, is a simple poll. Um, you know, so, so we're in an audience and we're talking with this client. And then we went out to Starbucks and I just started asking people. I said, would you use this? Would you use this? Would you use this? And it was a very simple test where only one out of nine people said yes. I said, that was your MVP right there. You, we are presenting the wrong value prop. So we went through a whole value prop exercise. And then what we did is that I bought some Google AdWords. And they're like, what are you doing? I said, we're just testing these values. I said, if people do a search and you presented the solution in the appropriate way, they should click it. They're like, but where is it going to go? I said, doesn't matter. So then they clicked it and it went to a 404 page. I said, that's fine. We don't need to build a wet landing page. We just need to see if people would click. We went through about 50 value prompts. And shocked me. This is where I get really excited is that people started clicking on one of them. It's like, I, if you ask me personally, it's a stupid idea. No one's going to do it. But wait, there's an audience that's clicking on that one value prop. And what's interesting is we went through so many versions that there's a suite of, suite of offerings this product did. It was only one of the five core features people were clicking on. And that was an insight to this company. So then I said, okay, let's go write some more. So we wrote multiple variants. People were clicking on all of them. I said, now it's time to build a landing page. Went to Fiverr. Spent, I know it's Fiverr, supposed to be $5, but five more dollars for next day, five more dollars for response. So it was like $15 still, $15 for a landing page. And on the landing page, we had a sign-up form. I said, now the test is, will people give? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to hear you speak about it because 
you know, I, I teach this topic and I, I see the lights go off when we get to this idea of MVP and when I share some of these simple types of experiments, especially ones where it's like, just run an ad and see if you can get it. If you can't even get people to your page, yeah. don't worry about everything else, yeah. please, honestly. And, you know, it is, uh, I certainly wish that I knew more about what I know now in the early days of doing it. We wouldn't be here. I would be on my yacht. You wouldn't know <laughs> me. With all due respect. Yeah. Know, so. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's incredible how much you can actually learn, but part of it is being open to hearing. Yeah. So this is the other thing, you know, we talk about, you brought up Steve Blank, customer development. Sometimes people mistake the idea of going to customers and talking to them with talking at them, mm -hmm. where they've got a very clear idea about what they want to hear, and then they structure a set of questions that allows them to hear right. back exactly what they want, and then there's been no actual learning. And I'm curious, because part of what you do is kind of kill the hopes and dreams of would-be entrepreneurs and existing yeah. companies, because they're coming to you a little bit from that place yeah. of, this is the best thing. And you're coming at it from the place of, let's see. And then surely there have been many circumstances, like the one you yeah. described, where the results prove unfavorably that you have the wrong either the wrong value proposition or the wrong customer segment how do you take their hand gently and take them beyond yeah. that that dismay well, I, I think there's a bit of charm that comes into that right and I think that's the differentiator between us and other agencies is that um, this is where UX designers get the bad rep of like oh they're the no people right they're the people who want to slow the process down they're the ones who want to do, do research because to your point if everyone just listened to UX designers, we'd all be on yachts right now, right? It, it is, yes, that's the correct way of doing it, right? Yes, you've got this CEO or new startup, you've got this brilliant vision, and of course you're right, but let's go validate that research. No one likes to hear their ideas now, and that's sort of like in the improv world, that's the no but versus the yes and. So my style is like, yeah, totally, that's awesome. How much money you got? Cool, you got money to build all of it? Let's go build all of it, great. Can we start with one of them, right? And so it's the continuous yes, and then we get focused on one, and let's go try it out. And what I show is that I'm a guy who, I mean, I, I love sciences and ran experiments and, and still run experiments, is that I show people like, this is just an activity or a series of activities we're going to go through. And it's empowering them and teaching them how to continue doing those activities. So in the enterprise space, it's the same way where I'm not coming in and trying to show you I have more knowledge of your industry. That's why you're an employee of this company. That's the value you bring. I'm giving you a scaffold to go play around in. And so it empowers people to focus on the process and the shift of focusing and getting passionate about the problem and not the solution, right? That's the solution is where people get sad. Oh, I thought this was the one. I said, that's cool, let's try again. And sometimes I tell people later on, I was like, do you know what WD-40 is? And you know WD-40, right? Water displacement. What's the 40 stand for? Yeah, yeah, the there. 40th time when he got it right. Right, and I say, thank God it wasn't the 39th time, right? So <laughs> WD-39... Does so it have that same ring? Yeah, yeah, it doesn't have the same ring. But that's exactly what I tell people. Like, and, and when people like rip up their hypothesis statement, I say, no, save it. Because I want you to see how much effort you've gone. I want you to build that. Okay, now we're on experiment number 40. Maybe it's going to work. And so it's, it's, those are the talented CEOs that, that I like to work with. Because you see they have that passion and drive, and they get there. And, and, and I think that's, that's where the stubbornness comes in. Is not when the sponsor or the stakeholder is stubborn about their solution, but they're stubborn about solving the problem. Uh, and that's the differentiator. So 
some clients who say, yeah, the solution and the solution doesn't work. Well, our relationships don't engage, stay engaged long because they usually find some other cheaper developer to just make the product they want. And then sometimes they come back six months later and say, hey, Arshad, can you help us out again? These things didn't work. I said, okay, so you've had fun not making product. Now let's just try these small bets, right? Small experiments to see where we can level up. And it's, it's you know, that, that AdWords thing, I've done that for enterprise clients. So it, it's interesting how I have the tools and the processes are the same. It's the ability to execute that just changes. It's just the scope and the scale. Right. Right. You do you run into this problem? I, I know I certainly have, where you have a prospective client and they say we're doing you know this very special unique thing that's all about us and we're unique and uh, do you have any experience in that? <laughs> You're like, well, I've got all of this experience right. and it's domain specific. Right. Uh, but I don't have, you know, the one-to-one -one experience of the very special, unique thing that only you are doing or believe to be doing. Are you of the opinion, you know, you mentioned earlier this outside looking in, are you of the opinion that when it comes to user experience, the less industry-specific knowledge you have already, the better it is, or that doesn't matter? What's your stance on that? I I'll give the consultant answer. It depends. It depends. I thought that was the instructor answer. <laughs> it's always going to be a little different. Yeah. It, no, it totally depends. I would say there's a perception. Right? We know perception stronger than reality. So clients feel confident when you've done this for another like industry. So knowing that they want that if I'm pitching them, I need to instill confidence in our agency or our consultancy. Um, so I think that's one. That's where the relevance comes in. I think, two, the concern is that when you become focused, because uh, I know there's a great dev shop in New York, and they only do Android, and they're Android experts, and Google swears by them. And the challenge is that they've gone so much sort of focused that they have a lot of bias now. They've lost that sort of competitive spirit, and they believe the entire world is powered by Android devices, right? So their solutions are very prescribed by this sort of textbook vacuum design guide, and it has lost that sort of connection with, like, well, what... People use other devices than Android. What are the learnings from there? So I think there's a balance. That's where I mean it depends, right? So yes, having industry or relative experience lessens the challenge of instilling confidence. But I think having too much and saying, I only work specifically with like, you know, um, I mean, we actually got turned down for a project for Coca-Cola because they wanted to make a product and marketing for, uh, they called them tweens. So it was 13 to 19 year old females. It's like, yeah, we don't have any portfolio pieces like that. So I said, but shouldn't you also be concerned if you're only looking for that specific niche? Those girls are going to become older and girls are younger turning into 13, right? So you're kind of missing those, those gaps. So I think that's why I said I give the depends answer. Um, I think it's a balance. Uh, I think being way too industry specific is a danger. Uh, I think having no industry specific in pitching a company, I would say you just need to be um, committed to persevere. Like, don't give up and be like, oh, well, this wasn't my forte, and so I'm giving up, right? So, One of the luxuries we have as consultants, as hired hit people, mm -hmm. is you're always getting to touch something new. So you certainly build up a big portfolio of new and different. Do you, and you've been with Digital Works now, you said it's been five years, right? right? So, do you ever have moments where you long for a home, where you think, oh, I just wouldn't mind being part of something and taking it from 
you know, inception to rapid growth to right. maturity to decline. So uh, tell me of this question. So I've had some close friends ask me, it's like, how come you haven't had your own startup? And I see it the same way where I see there's people fall into three types of modes. And they can cross, but usually people will explore in two and then they'll end up in one. And the three roles I sort of see is that you can be a technician, so a craftsperson, a designer, developer. You can be a manager, so that's resourcing and operations. And then there's that person with the vision, the stubborn one who, you know, we will do this no matter what. And so I think to buy into a company or to find a home, as you said, I would need to fall in line with that home's vision or mission. So, you know, the company was blue, I'd start wearing blue v-necks and paint my off as a um, technician, right? I was crafted, I did made designs, did research, made wireframes, prototypes, and now I'm in that manager role where I'm an operations guy. So you give me an idea and I will run my activities and process through and I'll validate that. And I can then actually figure out how to assemble the team to then go do the work, right? So me longing to have a home, no. My, my excitement and passion is I have a process, I have a technique, I want to run that as many times as I can in as many diverse areas as I can, right? So the goal for me, the home for me, is having my process rendered in the broadest diverse environments I can. Um, but, I, but I think that's, that's the answer to that where I don't see myself having a startup just because I don't ever see me getting so passionate about one product vision. And it's even more of a stretch for me to join a company because I've, I've got a lot of strong opinions where, again, I'd have to be the CEO and so that's doing a startup where I don't see myself doing that either. You're, you're passionate about process. Right, operations. Yeah. Right, like making it happen. Like I love, and I think that's the mindset that I'm good at helping people coach them into. Saying we are here to build for speed. We have to get it out there as fast as possible. Um, just talking about MVP, I remember there's a, there's a company uh, where there was a new application. We had users sign up, and there were all these tickets for deactivating the account, so deleting the credit card. And I said, look, we have zero customers, zero revenue. Why are we bothering about deactivating? They're like, well, legal won't approve it. I said, well, don't even tell legal, because we don't have this thing launched. So uh, it's about, like, are we building for speed, or are we building for scale? Where it's very different conversations, right? And when I say for scale, we have to understand that what you build from your zero to five customers is different from five to ten. 10 to 100, 100 to 1,000, 1,000 to 100,000. You know, it's sort of like I'm not driving the first car I had, not living in the same, you know, little studio apartment I first had. I had to get a bigger apartment, got married, got a bigger apartment, now we're about to have kids, have to get a house, right? So your technology needs to scale and evolve in that sense too. So building for speed, building for scale, those, those are the, the things that I find passionate about helping other people with their ideas for. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly relate, and it's it's... I love hearing you say so candidly, you know, I'm not a visionary. I, I feel the same about myself, and I think I've met so many great visionaries in my lifetime, and a lot of them have been so completely unmoored, as visionaries kind of have to be. Mm -hmm. They sort of, they're elevating 20,000 yeah. feet, looking out into the distant future, but the great visionaries have often been paired with you know, those grounded people who can sort of say, let me now pluck out in sequence the things that need to happen. And I, I feel a little bit about myself as tell me where you want to be and then I can figure out how to how yeah. to get you there. Yeah, I know. I've, I've got the resources to get. I mean, it's funny. So many times it just happened yesterday. I was having coffee with an old friend. He's like, I just want 15 minutes. I was like, well, yeah, let's go. We spent half hour. He's like, so what do you think about this idea? And I was like, it doesn't matter what I think. Because honestly, if you want my two cents, I think it's stupid. But I've told everything is stupid. It, it, what's important is, what do your first customers think? 
What do they want? Is it delivering a value to them, right? Uh, I remember that we had a CEO. Uh, she was she was a single person. She was CEO of a brand new startup, right? One person. And she said, hey, I've got X amount of dollars and I want to build this. I said, no, it's dumb. Not going to happen. Like, let's go, go find some customers. And I didn't say it was completely dumb. I was a little more tactful. But what I said is it was unproven. And it seemed like a long shot. Paraphrase down to me saying dumb. But uh, what I didn't ask her is that if you get me twice the budget, I will continue the conversations. And that was two sides. I thought one would just have her go away because she was very persistent. But what happens in two weeks is that she gets double the budget. I said, oh my gosh. I said, do you know why I asked double budget? She's like, so we can build more features. I said, no. We build the same amount of features. But when we fail, I know that we can still go a complete second cycle. So she was like, cool, let's do it. And then after all these like heavy moments, where I kept telling you, you're wrong, you're wrong, let's test it, let's test it. She said, why are you so pessimistic? Like, she's like, you're just squeezing the jam out of my donut. I said, no, you're the CEO. You keep that passion. And if you're still passionate after all the doubt I put in you, this is going to be awesome. And so we got that relationship. She understood that she's up there blue skying and I'm here trying to get down. You know, you buy those custom font licenses. Uh, and so it expires after 200,000 impressions. And she was very concerned. She's like, wait, so at next 200,000, we have to buy another license? I said, yeah. She's like, I was like, first of all, do you understand how many impressions we have to have for 200,000 views? She's like, yeah, but we're going to scale this company. I said, you keep thinking that. When that happens, let's talk about it. Right now, can we go with this? And she's like, okay, for now, right? So, And when had, you have that problem, yeah. that means you also have 200,000 people hitting your page. It's not the same problem anymore. That's exactly, that's exactly it. But she was, but she had that vision, right? It's going to be used by everyone. 200,000 is not enough. And I'm just like, we've got zero. Let's, let's wait till we get there. And it was this great, healthy dynamic where she was heads in the cloud. And, and I give, she gets all credit for it because all I did was my activities. And the moment there was something that proved incorrect, she came up with another one. She came up with another one. And honestly, I don't have that drive. Like someone, if I try an idea and it sucks, I give up, I'll go do something else. She kept trying, kept trying, kept trying, kept trying. So that is a characteristic of someone being visionary, right? I'll keep trying as long as you pay me. <laughs> right? Like, that, and that's why I needed twice X the budget. So I knew we had runway to keep running the experiments. That's Who, the pragmatism of process. Right. It's not just about the check. It's like, yeah. No, resources to do this, right? And so I give it all credit that through her stubbornness and sheer will of wanting to succeed and her openness, you said this in the very beginning, she was always open to feedback. In fact, she would come on the testing calls. She was like, oh my God, I can't believe they said it that way. We should do this and this and this. And so it was, she got the process. And she had then a team that ran the process, and the team respected her as the crazy one with these big ideas that drove them, right? That's the aspiration. That's where we want to go. And so from her sheer stubbornness, in nine months, they, they started making money nine months after they launched. And it's now been about two years that they're actually profitable, and they're going for investments. Like, it blows my mind. This was the same thing that I said, it's dumb. I still think it's dumb, because I don't understand why the market can't derive the services elsewhere. But clearly, they're okay paying that premium. And she's making that premium and she's delivering it and it's great, right? So again, it goes back to like, I don't know if it works or not. What I do know is I'll prove it to you if it works or not. Are you, as the self-proclaimed pessimist, are there any products in your life right now that actually get you excited where you think this brand has been able to create value for me well, and here's how? So I, I'm sure a lot of people say this, but I think Uber just from, from, from so many angles, 
when I first used Uber, it was the black car. Like, this was years ago before anyone really... That was their car. original yeah, was, value proposition. Yeah, it was the town Riding car. style. I felt, I, felt, I felt like I was an entourage. I'd whip out my phone and a town car would come up. And first time my wife was with me, she was like, who is this? You just jump in a random car. I was like, it's for us. She's like, oh my God, right? So that cool factor. And then I remember it would be about 100, it was about $90 from LAX to my place in Westwood when it first came out. It was so worth it. 90 bucks, done, black car. And now I get in this whole issue and I'm like, you're going down from five stars to three stars because you took Santa Monica instead of Wilshire. The whole bill's like $18 in my UberX, but it burns me, right? So it's interesting how they've gone from this luxury experience to now it's become a utility. It's in fact my primary mode of transportation. What's interesting is that in all these and working for a lot of agencies and advertising clients, it's like time on site or time in app. And yet I call my Uber from home through Amazon Alexa. Right, so I say, Alexa, call my Uber, and it's there. Zero time and out. <laughs> right, but yet they're making money. You're they're messing like, with their metrics. But but they're making money. Right. Right. They're they're making they're, they they get that seven dollar ride out of me. So it's it's amazing how in a world where everyone's concerned about eyeballs, Uber built a genuine business that derives that delivers value and derives revenue for them. Right. So that it just marvels me how their whole value prop is open the app, push a button, close the app. Like, you talk about one-click shopping on Amazon, which was brilliant, and it gave me, I mean, I had to eventually remove my credit card because I was shopping way too much on one-click. <laughs> that one-click was addicting. That was a great product. you have any dash buttons lying around? No, my wife doesn't. I'm, I, don't, I don't even get close to it. I just push them all the time. But, uh, but Uber did the one-tap app. Open the app, tap the app, close the app, get in your car, right? Uh, or get in the car and be on your way. The other app that's really and just, just timing is the Pokemon Go. You did it. Oh, I'll, I'll, are you doing I'm it right testing. now? I'm, I'm testing. Oh I'm yeah, testing. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm testing up to level sixteen. Don't right now, test right? your way into <laughs> busy traffic, by the way. I've had to actually. So, side story. I actually had to take someone out of the middle of the street. I saw this kid. He was probably like in high school. He was in the middle of the street, and I like went tapped him on the show. I was like, hey, dude, like get out of the middle of the street. Like you can still catch it from the sidewalk. But I think what's interesting is I went to Third Street Promenade uh, this weekend. It blew my mind. I felt like I was in it was I was in um, the Truman Show, and like I did not know what was going because every single couple, everyone was glued on the phone playing the same product. That is creepy. How the heck has that ever happened? The entire Third Street, everyone was on these phones. I mean, I saw old grandmas on these phones playing Pokemon Go, and I'm just sitting here saying this is very bizarre. I think, we didn't get the memo. I think Pokemon Go is actually an elaborate ruse by the chiropractic society <laughs> to get us to start holding our phones 15 degrees more in front of our face because, you know, for the last few years, you've got every... Yeah. People say the number one criticism of Pokemon Go is, look at all of these zombies walking around with their phones <laughs> like that. I said, it's actually better yeah. than the zombies we've been for the last five it's years little... walking around face down yeah. on the ground, but... Well, just walk. Fascinating. Right? Yeah. I, 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 so there's this whole thing like, oh, VR, AR, and I'm sure I might rub people the wrong way, but VR, I don't understand. And I know a lot, there's a great saying. That's because like, we're old, by the way. That's probably it. But, but what's interesting, there's this saying, there's like, there's two types of people with VR. People who've tried it and get it, and people who haven't tried it. I mean, I've tried VR. I still don't understand, like, going into an immersive world. Is, but AR, I 100% get, right? So AR is brilliant, where, um... So this being a game that plays with that light AR, I love it. I love how someone's made a practical version because it, it takes me back to, I remember when it was on the Game Boy and the cartoon show, 
This is so cool. I, I have like, I've got a photo where the Pokemon was on my car dashboard. Right. I love it. I tweeted it to everyone and was like, hey, look, there's a Pokemon on my dashboard. Like, that's a good use of sort of technology and that nostalgia of like, I wish I was capturing Pokemons with my Pokeballs. Well, it's a great example. We talk about value. I mean, AR has been around for years. I mean, I remember when I was just getting started, clients would say, do you guys do anything in it? Same thing, right? Do you guys have lots of experience in AR? Oh, you mean the brand new technology that nobody has <laughs> made commercially viable? Yeah, we got tons. What do you need? And, you know, the problem is people want to leverage technology independent of the why. And I think right. this is what you're talking about with, with, with product, with user experiences. We want to do the thing or we want it to look this way or we want it to work this way. Everybody always dives right into the trenches right. without understanding who is it for, will they want it, is this viable, that you know, big yeah. V in the MVP. And, and I do agree, you know, watching from the sidelines because I haven't been playing Pokemon Go is... Finally, somebody figured out yeah. how to make AR interesting. No, it's, it's viable. Yeah, no, it's it, and that's what excites me is that more games will now like this was like the game that's going to start that. Something interesting on that, what I think is also brilliant is that it's the second company that's nailed sort of that that hooked model. Tinder, right? Swipe left, swipe right, and I've had so many clients say, "Oh, just give us the Tinder interface." It's like, okay, let's understand. The interface is not what makes Tinder successful. It's the outcome. And there's this mystery that I'm going to keep swiping and there might be a random connection. But it's really the outcome of that connection. Well, the real value of Tinder is, well, we know what. But how can your app, a fashion client, that swipe left for the dress, swipe for right for the dress, and will match a dress correctly to you, that outcome of me finding the right dress is nowhere near me hooking up with someone. Right? So that whole hook model doesn't get there. But Pokemon Go has actually nailed it because what's interesting is people are walking around in the hopes of something popping up. It's that rogue match on Tinder and the outcome, instead of getting laid, the outcome here is leveling up your Pokemon, right? So someone's nailed it. This random act of, will I get it, will I not? And then even when you throw it to catch the Pokemon, it sometimes gets caught, it sometimes pops up. It's, it's these moments of excitement and delight that is, is exciting that it's the second app that I say they've really got that hooked model. Right. And you, you, when you say hooked, for those of us listening in, you're, you're referring to Nir Eyal's book, Hooked. Right, right, right. <clears throat> how, to, how to make habit-forming products. What else is in your uh, reading list, listening list, places of yeah. inspiration? So, so it's interesting. My, my, my reading list is, is a little short. I, the book I recommend uh, UX designers or up-and-coming, or people interested in UX is Lean UX. Uh, by Jeff. I think it's a very, it's a great mix between lean startup and UX, applied UX thinking, right? Because there's the whole academic science of human-centered design. So lean UX is number one usually. Um, and, and then Hooked is a great, is another great book. There's also, interesting, we talk about this, I don't believe that there's a level two or 200 course UX course. Uh, there are level two product and business and all this, but with UX, there is a simple, straightforward process, and then level two is called practice, right? So it's gaining uh, experience with running that process. And so for me, it's interesting where you, you start to trust the process. There's been moments where I've been in client workshops and engagements where it's like, oh my gosh, everything's going off the deep end, and I'm going to try to manipulate the situation. And the moments I don't, it, it works, right? So for me, with the UX, I think it's for me... Um, it's going to events in the community, uh, going to events around the world. Uh, I think the thing I like the most is there's a lot of great, I follow a lot of cool people on, uh, or people I think cool on Medium. So that's, that's really my go-to source. How come you don't follow me? 
I really put you on the spot. That is the definitive. (laughs) Don't worry. I'll send you the link later. You'll be like, I'm so glad that you. What is the link? (laughs) Well, I got a few. I mean, right? As at Susanna Bate, at Dev Factory LA, at 100 Product Managers. managers We're making history. I already told you. You were part of this. Um, Moving the needle. But yeah, no, it's, it's as far as. It's interesting. I my source of inspiration is doing. Uh, I don't read a lot of books. The two books, Hooked and Lean UX. Um, I've read Lean Startup. Like I've read these books because they've been in the industry. But for me, it's it's doing. Uh, it's interesting. I, I did. Someone was saying was like, you know, this UX process is so long. I said, okay, everyone get get a blank sheet of paper, and I broke down the process in like a one hour design thinking workshop. I said, take five minutes. Find a stranger, talk to them, understand their pain point, right? Go take five minutes to find their articulation of, of the opportunity. Then take 10 minutes, sketch out some ideas. Take five minutes, make the product. In 20 minutes, come back to that person and say, would this solve it? Like that's that's the sh- long and the short of it, right? It, it's developing empathy, identifying the opportunity, making the solution and testing it. To me, that's the source of inspiration. To see, was, was my investigation, did it have bias? Was it true? Uh, was my solution appropriate? How far off, right? So I think there's a lot of, there's an intuition that is developed that, that instills confidence to knowing like, okay, we're gonna go forward. So, I mean, it, that's mostly also my personality, right? It's, it's I'm a process resource operations type of guy, so. You, you just went on record essentially and said that masterful UX can be distilled down to uh, 30 minutes of uh, some sketches and some chatting and yeah yeah I've, I've got a I've got a medium article in draft mode from that one so. okay okay <laughs> great send it along uh last question for you Arshad I know you're busy guys so is there a I'm gonna have a mug you're gonna print a quote your name underneath like this is a I ask people this personal mantra some sort of sound bite that you use that you really feel reflects one important philosophy or belief that you have about life. It doesn't have to be UX specific, but uh, I'm sure I do. Let me think. I've got I've got a couple mantras that go through my head. Um, I, I I think uh, Richard Feynman's uh, quote is what I'd end with is that. I'm going to butcher the quote, that's what I'm trying to remember, but it goes, uh, if it doesn't fit in an experiment, or if it doesn't, if it can't be experimented, then it's wrong. Right. right? So that's that sort of openness to try, it's the excitement of discovery, and it's the willingness to keeping on, keeping on. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Oh, really my, my pleasure. Great chatting with you. Yeah. And, uh... Do send along the article. We'll yeah, make yeah. sure we'll, that we'll, all of our listeners are going, where is that article? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll link it. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I'll have that in draft mode. We'll, I'm interested to see how the community responds to it. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, let's experiment. UX in one hour. Let's <laughs> see what I get myself into. All right, Oshad. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to 100 p.m., the official podcast for 100productmanagers.com. If you haven't been to our site, please check it out. We have so many great resources for anybody looking to learn more about product management or starting a technology business. I'm your host, Susanna Bate. Join me here. We've got a new conversation every Tuesday. We'll see you next time.